0: We're studying the book of Titus, um, and if you have the material, whatever that Fred sent you, it'd be great uh, to have it uh, close by. Uh, we cracked into the book after some introduction uh, last week, and uh, the authorities tell me that we are in uh, verse 3. <clears throat> the keepers of the book, my amanuensis. Isn't that a great word, amanuensis? And so. Um, We're going to kind of review just a little bit uh, in the salutation or greeting or introduction of a letter or whatever. The writer is Paul, and he identifies himself that way in verse 1. In verse 4, he tells us he's addressing this letter to Titus. Uh, Just a reminder of a couple of things by way of introduction. The book of Titus is one of three what we call the pastoral epistles, 1 Timothy they were written in this order, 1 Timothy, Titus, and then 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy was the book that Paul wrote when he was on death row in Rome, about the, written probably in the late fall of A.D. 67. Uh, he would be executed in early 68 by uh, Nero. Um, the, the value, well, among other things, the value of the pastoral epistles is you really get an insight into the heart of Paul in the last Uh, years of his life Um, he is uh, passionate here as you will see and if you've read ahead or even looked at the note about the church he is concerned about the state of the church in Crete which is where Titus is serving and in Ephesus which is where Timothy is serving, we will not deal with 1st and 2nd Timothy but just to round out the overview and um, it's, it's, it's important and I, I covered this in the introduction, it's important to always remember when you read the word church in the New Testament, you have to discern, is he addressing the church as an organism, the living body of Christ over which Christ is the head, or is he addressing the church as an organization? And that's in, in the sense of a local church with its structure and leaders and so on. And it's in the book of Titus where he addresses the issues of the uh, church's organization. He wants to talk about how do you choose leaders? How how do you go about organizing your local church? I hope those last two sentences I just uttered made sense to you. Because uh, ecclesia, which is the term that's always translated church, you have to always be careful of the context. Is he talking about the living body of Christ? the organism, or is he talking about the organization? Secondly, by way of introduction, Titus is a, um, he's a Greek. He is not a Jew. He is a, a, a citizen of the Roman Empire, which we'll find out later on. Uh, we don't know a great deal about him in terms of of his life. Um, we are not even certain that it was Paul who led him to Christ, but we do know that Paul discipled, or the word we use today, mentored him. And um, therefore, he is writing to Titus, who has now emerged as kind of the leader of the churches at Crete. Crete, and you'll see that coming up. Crete is, I'm sure you know this, but it's an island in the Mediterranean. And so, very strategic island for the empire at that time, but uh, it would have been a strategic place for churches to be planted, and they were. As Paul introduces himself, um, now looking at the text itself, he identifies himself as a servant of God. As I told you last week, that's the only time in his 13 epistles he calls himself that. He usually calls himself a servant of Christ or servant of Jesus or servant of Jesus Christ. And as we don't know why he chose to do this, so we have to speculate a little bit, but most would argue he wants to see him, he wants everyone to see him in that long line of prophetic authority from the Old Testament. Because most of the Old Testament prophets identified themselves that way. Jeremiah did, Isaiah did, Habakkuk did, and so on. Because what he's going to be addressing is the kind of things that authoritatively need to be firmed out. And an apostle of Jesus Christ is the other part of his identification. I'm not going to agree, I really took apart verse 1 and 2. I mean, I grammatically took it apart because it's so important. It's one of the most remarkable two sentences in all of Paul's epistles. It is loaded with doctrinal truth. And I ask you to do a thought paper on that, and of course nobody did it, so I don't know if you got it or not. But um, nonetheless, uh, I did ask you to at least think about circling the word faith and truth and godliness in verse 1, and then the word hope in verse 2. And we connected all those last week. And um, the hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, I just love that, don't you? If you're going to believe what God said, remember something. He never lies. And that's, a, that's important it's uh, just important affirmation of one of the attributes of God. Uh, it promised before the ages began. and at the proper time, I'm continuing in verse three, manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. Now, I'm going to start with verse 3, even if we did get into that a little bit. Again, key words, faith, truth, godliness, hope, in verse 1 and 2. Affirming that God is an immutable God who never changes. And one of the things you can bank on is he never lies. He's a God of truth. Now, how does Paul fit into this? He says, at the proper time, he manifested, the, the subject of that is he, God, manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. So the little phrase I'm reading from the ESV translation, at the proper time, that's very close to what's in Galatians 4.4. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under law. So if the subject is at the proper time, God, now this is an important question, so think about it. What attribute of God does that affirm? At the proper time, God did this. Sovereignty. sovereignty. The sovereignty of God. He's the sovereign Lord of history. So Paul is just saying at the proper time, at just the right time in history, when everything was lined up from God's perspective, he acted. He did that with Jesus. And I guess that's what Galatians 4.4 4 is stating. Paul's using the same language, affirming that God is the Lord of history. God's superintendence of the events of history are always for a purpose. And what he does here is he's, he's saying at the proper time, in all the things that God superintends, he wants his message proclaimed. He wants his message preached. He wants his message declared. And Paul said, I've been entrusted with that. And that word entrust is is really quite a magnificent word in, in the original language. It really is. Entrusted. It's a stewardship. It's a divinely commissioned stewardship. So if Paul chooses as he does to use a term like that, what should we conclude about how the Apostle Paul looked at his responsibilities? Very seriously. This isn't a cursory, superficial understanding of what he was supposed to do. I mean, this guy's taking it seriously because he says, and again, ESV translates it this way: entrusted by the command of God our Savior. It was a stewardship responsibility given to me by God, but I'm obeying lovingly obeying, seriously obeying the command of God my Savior. Okay? So you have this this magnificent, marvelous, doctrinal connecting of key thoughts in verses 1 and 2, and then verse 3, how he, that is Paul, sees himself in the scheme of what God, I shouldn't say scheme, this plan of what God is is unfolding at the proper time to accomplish his purpose.
1: Yes, Jim? So could you help us, or help me understand what it talks about, even his word, is he talking about the gospel, or does he talk about the entire
0: truth of Scripture, or is there... The entire, uh, let's use another word, the entire revelation of Scripture. It's a... uh, it's a uh, it's a word. It, the, ter- the Greek term is logos. It's a word that's interchangeably used uh, for a number of things. Uh, it can mean the gospel in a narrow sense, or it can mean the entire corpus of God's revelation. Ultimately, all what you and I would call all sixty-six books of the Bible. And so, Jim, it's a it's a kind of a, and the way he's using it here. It's an all-encompassing than all-encompassing a term. It really is. Because that takes you back to what how Paul sees and for the sake of the faith. We talked last week about what faith is there. It's not saving faith, it's sustaining faith that involves all the content of God's of God's Word, the truth. Remember, we, we talked about this in the introduction, sound doctrine produces God's living. So sound sound doctrine is the application of all the truth of God's Word. So I think that's how he's using that as an Mm all-encompassing term. Does does that answer your question?
1: um, You said in the proper time, God isn't just passive watching his creation evolve, is he? Uh, he, Isn't he active in helping in some way to bring all of this to fruition of presenting Christ uh, to... The world and also uh, Paul's part in this as well as he is it, it's just not happenstance no. That, no. That, today no. it's not happenstance either no
0: it? no uh, I mean and that's the that's the stress point and tension point for us because he is focusing on something extremely positive here. But uh, that's why if you follow carefully the language I use, I use the word superintendent, <clears throat> that God's sovereignty is superintending the affairs of history to accomplish His predetermined ends. Now that's kind of a real formal way to put it. But it really it tries to capture the way the, God, the, way the Lord reveals this and helps us to understand it throughout Scripture. Another way of saying that Fred is that things don't just happen we are not and this is very this' is a very important concept to me personally we are not victims of random forces what explains things is not randomness uh, there is a purpose and a goal and an end to all that god's doing and um, the, the, the in, you this creates enormous theological tension for us. But you could really successfully argue, I believe, from scripture, that to, from God's perspective there's no such thing as a coincidence. There's no
1: such thing
0: as a word. That's a coincidence. Now again, I mean you and you and I now I don't know if I want to get into all this theology, but I'll do it just for a little bit because he raised <laughs> the question and if you want to find a fault with anyone, point to him. But um If we if we really think about God then we have to reach uh, some understanding about his attributes. God is eternal you're temporal God is infinite you're finite Now I hope you know what you know what all those terms mean don't you okay so I mean just just those two those two contrasts and then you would' want to add a third one God is perfectly holy and perfectly righteous you're not. So just those those contrasts, it's going to be very difficult for this God with these attributes and who he is to communicate and connect with us unless he chooses to do so. And, and what I'm saying makes sense to you. So that he has chosen to do that means that God has communicated to us truth of his infinite, eternal, perfectly holy, perfect, perfect righteous being to us who are just the opposite. And so that's why I take a lot of time. These Each one of these words is important because God's spirit inspired them. And so it's worthwhile taking time to understand the words because these this is God's word. And so and at the same time, then, he's telling us at the proper time, Paul says, we're back to Galatians 4, 5, in the fullness of time, what's the point? God is accomplishing his purposes in human history as the eternal infinite holy God to accomplish his purposes, which in the context of what we're studying is redemption and salvation and justification. All those wonderful words that focus on, on his plan of salvation for the human race, which is in rebellion against him. But he's He's dealing with that rebellion and that's what Easter is all about that we celebrated a couple of weeks ago. So um, now I'm glad you didn't ask another question, so I'm not gonna even get into that.
1: Woody want us to ask? Woody you? You know the question I'm gonna ask lesson I <coughs> learned in high school or grade school either, but just introduction in the ESB talks about Titus being a Gentile, and you said he was Greek. Yeah, they're, they're yeah Greek, Greek. And I, Greek, I guess Greek. I don't know, I guess I really didn't know the difference. I mean, I, I didn't know that Gentile included
0: probably many... Uh, well, an uh, easy way to think about that is uh, the, the, the Bible talks about several ways to group <coughs> humanity, but uh, one of them is they're Jews, the People that were descendants of Abraham and so on. And then there's everybody else. And the everybody else fit under Gentile. Even the Orientals? Oh, and the Orientals. Yeah, even,
1: yeah, yeah. Thank yeah. yeah. yeah.
0: yeah, you. Yeah. Even me. Yeah, you, you and you. You and you. Yeah, I mean, it's just. No, you're not. You're
1: equal in Gentile.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. But, I mean, it's just, that's not in any way to assign higher value or lower value. It's just a way in which the scriptures. And Paul regarded himself, uh, I I don't think he says it in Titus, as I recall, but he does in other epistles, he regarded himself as the apostle to the Gentiles. All right. Now, we're still not out of verse 3, but any other questions? Okay. Now, I want you to notice something else. Um, manifested in his word through the preaching, which has been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. Now, I'd like your eye to go down to the end of verse 4. What do you see? Christ Jesus, our Savior. Now, in my Bible, what I did is I circled God our Savior at the end of verse 3, and Christ Jesus our Savior at the end of verse uh, 4, and drew a line between them. That's intentional on Paul's part affirming again grammatically the deity of Jesus Christ Christ Jesus our Savior is God our Savior do you follow what I just said I mean that's grammatical but that's a very important point Paul is doing that intentional it's an intentional statement of, of, of grammar on his part he wants our eyes to connect the two, okay? So this uh, rather wonderful, marvelous introduction um, where Paul is identifying himself and how he fits into all that God's doing, he then says, I'm addressing this letter to Titus. We, we already talked about a little bit about him. As we get into the book, we'll talk a little more about him. My true child in a common faith as I mentioned, I think I mentioned it here, Um, we're not certain if Paul led Titus to Christ. Uh, We do know he discipled Titus and um, had uh, affirmed, I think it's a better way to put this, affirmed his role as the leader of the churches in Crete, um, all of which were pretty new churches. And so Titus, probably he's mid to late 30s at this point, in, I mean, in terms of his age, maybe 40. I don't think any older than that. Um, so he's, he, 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 and that's really something. He must have been so, um, not only intelligent and brilliant, but so effective in the way he dealt with people and his, uh, you know, what we would call today in, in the 21st century, his administrative abilities, that he had that responsibility. That's an enormous responsibility to have. And so he says, my true child, my spiritual child, I'm not biological, I don't, you know that, but my spiritual child in a common faith. We share a common faith. And then he, I want to go through that grace and peace in just a minute, but Joel.
1: So is there any sense of the size and scope of this organization?
0: Or it, oh, or it, no. And I, yeah. There, I mean, you know, Crete's an island. Right. It's not as large as Cyprus, which is farther to the east, but it's still a good-sized island. We do not know uh, how many individual churches that ha- there that have been planted on the island of Crete. And they would have
1: been house churches.
0: They would have all been house churches, absolutely, because right. we're this is a dozen or- we're you know we're in the we're in the sixty sixty six A.D. So it's about thirty. Thirty-three years after Jesus went back to the Father, and it's just again is showing you how quickly the, the church is growing. It is just, it is absolutely peppering in ex- the Mediterranean world and, and exploding across it. And so uh, that, and I've told you this before. I really believe this very strongly. Paul had a strategic plan, and that strategic plan was plant key churches in Eastern Mediterranean, and then move on. And that's what we talked about in the introduction. I think he was released. In Acts 28 continued, extra-biblical literature tells us he was in Spain. So, anyway, but that's beyond this. And so, if I cannot give you any reliable number, uh, Joel, in terms of, of numbers of people, in terms of numbers of churches, uh, we we would infer, and that's all it would be, you're probably talking somewhere between seven and maybe ten churches, maybe a little more. But not probably not much more, because you're still early, and all it, and it, it's, it's, If I use this word, you're going to think of the 21st century, and I don't want you to do that. If you want to give him a title, he's like a bishop, but don't think of bishop the way the Roman Catholic Church thinks about it, the way the Methodist Church thinks about it. They both have bishops. That's not what this is. It's just he's like, he's like the 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 the, the equipper and trainer and mentor over all these churches. He's developing elders, developing leaders. That's exactly what Paul's going to tell him in the next paragraph. That's his role. And, uh, I mean, if you know anything about uh, how the modern missionary movement, which kind of started in the late 1700s, that was the strategy they had. Go into an area... Uh, proclaim the gospel. People get converted. The next thing you must do is start to disciple and mentor and equip leaders. That's the most important thing to do, and that's what Titus is doing.
1: So, from an administrative role, he would have been kind of the senior most person.
0: In- yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. He's like the lead pastor on Crete, <laughs> and I mean, I, we're trying to give 21st century right, labels right. to. Nothing has emerged. There's no structure. I mean, there's certainly no major structure. It's local stuff going on. And that what Paul is and this is this is what's so neat about the pastoral epistles. Paul is trying to get these guys to manage growth. That's really what he's trying to do. And what's what's the priority in managing growth? Sound doctrine. Sound doctrine. That's what he keeps saying.
1: Sound doctrine. So, so these were home churches.
0: They were oh sure. Mm-hmm. There are no they, buildings yet. No
1: mm-hmm. right. Um, so, they, but they were more than just family that lived in them. Oh, absolutely. Oh, yeah, 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 uh-huh.
0: yeah. Uh-huh. Right? Uh-huh. Neighbors. Then mm-hmm. one neighbor had to travel mm-hmm. a little bit farther. So, well, you know, maybe I'll start one here. Mm-hmm. Well, and these. Uh, yeah, well, if I'll use an example because we know a fair amount about that. If you go to Romans sixteen last chapter of the Book of Romans, Paul lists all these names, dozens of names, and we can identify five house churches there. We can identify five five house churches. We know who the leaders were. Now, that's all we can say. Nothing else we can say about it. But that gives you a little sense, and then from extra-biblical, there's a a second-century book called the Didache, which has a tremendous amount of information on how and that's the second century, How the Local Church functioned? It's a remarkable book, actually. It's like, it's called, it's like a handbook. But it really it helps us to understand how are they organizing these things? What do these little house churches look like? What do they do in these house churches when they gather on a Sunday and stuff? And that's, where, that's one of the things we learn when we study something like that. But we're very early here. We're still, like I said, we're only three decades after Jesus went back to the Father. A little over three decades. So, you know, you just, you see, what what do you do when things are exploding with growth? It's the same like in church in Africa or parts of Latin America. The church is absolutely exploding with growth. And so how do you manage that? What do you do with that? And that's what's, uh, that's right now, that's one of the cutting edge issues in, in missions. It really is. And it's not by sending Westerners over there and telling them, you, become like us, and then you're, that's not what it is. That's the worst way to do it. And so it's, uh, it's, a lot of good, neat, creative things are going on right now. And in the Muslim world, the church is absolutely exploding in the Muslim world. We're
1: talking Christian church.
0: Yeah. We're, I'm, talking, I'm talking people coming to Christ in churches. And it's all underground, and people are being killed and paying a very high price. But the church is exploding in the Muslim world. It really, of course, you don't hear that on Fox, but or because you guys watch Fox. If but if you were the liberal, you'd watch MSNBC. Or if you're wise, you don't watch anything. You just you read, you read, and you think. You don't just watch. Just look for
1: the Sears ads. Pardon me. Just look for the Sears ads. Yeah,
0: really. Now I, we really got off the subject. Then I think, as I remember, it was Joel's fault. But from Joel, but no, I'm just kidding. But um, now. He, notice what he does. This is his typical greeting, and so I'm going to just take a minute. We've done, but some of you haven't been around as long as some of the others. <clears throat> but Paul does something that is absolutely unique in the uh, in the ancient world, first century world. He says, "Grace and peace to you." Okay? Oh, I'm sorry. No. Grace and peace. Now, the word, the Greek word for grace is oops, The Greek word for grace is caress. The Hebrew word for peace is shalom, as you know. Now, let's suppose that I'm walking down the street in, in, in Athens, Greece, and I see John. I would say, koresh, John. Grace, John. That was the greeting in the Greco-Roman world. But I'm walking down the uh, street in Jerusalem, and I say, shalom, God. That's the typical Greek. Still is today, 2018. That's Shalom. So what Paul is doing is he's combining the typical Greek greeting and the typical Hebrew greeting. Nobody does that in the ancient world. You don't find letters that start this way, except in Paul. If you're reading a Greek letter, and there, we have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of those, that you know, I'm talking about just people, not coming in, Christians, I'm just talking about letters, this is how they addressed it. You know, like you and I would say, we're writing that, greetings, John, something like that. Well, that was the greeting they used. So Paul's combining, why does he do that? Well, most expositors think, because the church is both Greek and Hebrew united, Ephesians two eleven through 22, and in the church, there's no difference anymore. But it's also something theological. God always deals with humanity in grace. And the result of God dealing with humanity in grace is peace. He deals with humanity in common grace. He sends the rain and the the, the sun on the righteous and the unrighteous, Christ said. But he also offers us saving grace which is the finished work of Christ, death, birth, resurrection, and so on. And the result of us accepting his gracious gift is peace with God and peace with one another. And so it's it's really, it's really quite a, mag, a magnificent summary. Just to his greeting, a magnificent summary of what he represented. The grace of God that offers the peace of God to a broken Humanity. Because of sin. And so it's, uh, it's just... I, I hope you don't mind I did that. That's just a, a, a wonderful reminder that every word is important. Every word in the scriptures is important. And so to just take that apart, you're just reminded again, oh, grace is how, it's the word that describes how God deals with broken humanity peace is what he offers humanity through his grace now that should be the key sentence in your thought paper for next week, okay grace and peace. you got it sure. not, not so hey,
1: statements but, was like this in a lot of the letters are in a lot of the letters of the they are, they and are it's so easy to skip over them like mm-hmm. a dear Jim. yeah, well, right I didn't really mean anything like yeah. but I've always looked at them and thought we're making a serious mistake if we don't see them as paul's absolute desire for what we should
0: experience mm-hmm. in life and we shouldn't mm-hmm. pass over them so lightly it's, it's well said it's well said
1: absolutely we can present grace but it's received by that person that maybe we're sharing christ with that particular person may not and will not probably but could we say that based on what you said? because we're talking it's, mm-hmm. not just there's no war
0: but we're talking about oh, no. inner spirit. this is you know, right grace. this is um, more of an interpersonal personal and interpersonal quality of life absolutely not talking about the absence of war to a sense. that's not what he means at this point but, yep mm-hmm. okay and notice uh, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior and again to get the full doctrinal impact of that, you got to go back to God our Savior at the end of verse 3. Because Paul is indisputably, indisputably equating the equality of God the Father and God the Son. Indisputably, grammatically, that's what he's doing. And I mean, uh, you know, those who have been around for a little bit, remember, we've talked about the Trinity. God is Trinity. God is one essence of three persons who differ relationally, Father, Son, and Spirit, and functionally. God is one. One essence of three persons. And this, this, what Paul is doing here grammatically is just affirming the equality of the persons, Father and Son. Now those sentences make sense to you. Yes. That's the second part of your thought paper for next week. But I'm, I'm kidding here. But it's just see, if if you don't keep coming back to this and keep reminding yourself of this great doctrinal truth, you're missing one of the most rich aspects of the New Testament. Further evaluation, revelation, explanation, detail of the complexity of our God, one essence of three persons who differ, relation and functionally. My favorite, my absolute favorite passage on this is John chapter 5, verses 19 through 24, where Jesus answering the question of the Pharisees and all that, he just says, my father and I are one. The father loves the son and the son loves the father. I don't do anything independently of my father. When you just start working through the language, what Jesus is doing there is he's explaining the relationship between the two persons of the one essence of God. And it's so difficult for our temporal, finite minds to grab. But it's a very rich passage. Just says, read and think and meditate upon. Oh man, that's my God. So, no, anyway.
1: You know, Jim, after attending your Bible study for a fair amount of years, uh, I just don't know how the average person can just read the Bible and really get the, the, the meaning of everything as you teach it, you know? I mean, it's so easy to read the black on the white, you know? you know? You just get right through it. You know, you read one line, you go right on down, you know, and say, well, I read the Bible
0: but witty I would I have would, known you a while and I don't know you really well but I would pr- be pretty certain to make this observation you read the Bible differently now than you did seven years ago okay I mean that's all that is I'm not, I don't want you to pat yourself in the back it's just affirming what happens as the more you study and read the word of God you read it differently now, with greater understanding and greater depth of meaning. than You did seven or eight. You know, how long have we had to study? in Eight, eight years, eight, or whatever. Okay. Over and long you've been with us? And that—that's—that's—that's that's, that's what God's doing, Woody. So I mean, that's. So you are reading it differently. You are reading it with greater understanding and depth. It's
1: a lot nicer, and but,
0: it's
1: <laughs> even more exciting. So,
0: well, really well, it is. I mean, I just. Uh, I mean, I've been. Yeah. I mean, it really is. And that's, uh, that's, that's one of the, the, the rewards that come with studying the Word of God and spending time with it. However deep you, you focus on it, but whatever, the more you do it, the more understanding results. But
1: doesn't that, that also point you to why you go to Bible study, you go to small groups, you mm-hmm. attend worship, Absolutely. If you try to be a Christian by yourself, you you, you will
0: understand. I mean, that's a great comment too, Glenn. It really is. That's why we need one another, and we need, and what Paul's going to be instructing Titus here in a minute, we need to have leaders and mentors that can help us grow through the Word of God. There is no such thing as a lone ranger in a Christian faith. There just isn't. And if you try to make it on your own, uh, uh, you're going to... Well, anyway, that's not the way God wants us to do it. We're created in community. He wants us to live in community. And uh, that's what the value of it is. Okay? We're finally out of the greeting, the introduction. All right? Now, verse 1. Now, if you're following in your... uh, in your note uh, packet. I draw your attention to these are PowerPoint slides that I just reduced down and put them on paper, but uh, that I use. Page four is is where I I want you to to look with me at. Um, In verse five, Paul shifts now to the first point that explains why he wrote the letter. And you see it in chapter 1. His focus is on the church. Now here, it's the church's organization, not the church's organism. Remember the difference? okay? Because here he's interested in Titus' responsibility to organize the church on Crete. And so, um, and as I've said, I'll just repeat it again. The context is The church is exploding with growth in the Mediterranean world. As Jesus said it would in Acts 1.8. And that's exactly what's happening. And now, Paul says, this is why I left you in Crete. Now you have a demonstrative pronoun, this. Why did he leave him on Crete? The next clause. So that you might put what remained into order. That's a very important a cloth. A leader must make sure that things are in order. God is not a God of chaos. God is not a God of confusion. Paul says that in 1 Corinthians 14, blatantly. God is not the author of confusion. Now, if I just want to drive home how important this is. If you were Satan, and you were organizing, which he is, and has been doing since Genesis 3, a rebellion against God, what would be your core values? My mission is to blow everything up. And I think Satan's doing a really good job of that, don't you? You just see the evidence that everywhere. If I were Satan, I'd work on blowing up the family. Some success there. Blowing up all organized structures in society. Doing a pretty good job of that. And then I'd want to blow up the local churches. Well, there is some evidence that that may be having some measured success in some areas. And Jesus is interested in putting everything back together. God is a God of order. And that's why submission to authority is such an... You just see it throughout the Bible. And as we... Uh, it, it, when you study the the, the 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 Ten Commandments, you study the moral law of God, one of the... That's part of the... The, the, uh, 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 the Fifth Commandment is, you know, honor your mother and father Uh Show respect and dignity to your mother and father, because that's where you learn submission to authority. And if the family's blown up, where are children gonna learn submission to authority? They're not. And that's why my daughter's reading coordinator in District 66, and it's just, I mean, she has been doing it that long. She, she, the other night we were talking about it, and she just says, Dad, I just can't believe what I'm seeing now compared to when I started. And I mean, I'm 70s, so I had started way back in Pennsylvania. you know. And it is so different now, college students today, compared to what they were. But my daughter's working with fifth graders. And almost every single case is kids just come from terribly dysfunctional homes. It's just their mess just a mess. And so, you know, so Paul is saying, Timothy, I left you in Crete to bring order. To bring order to the church. So what's the primary responsibility of local church leaders? If just just looking at this verse, to keep order, to establish order. <laughs> That's just, we forget that sometimes. Church is not just a bunch of autonomous people doing whatever they want to do. There's order and structure and purpose, just like everything should be in life. Now, that's, we're not talking about dictatorial authority and rule. That's not what we're talking about. It's just order. And so, connected to that is then appoint elders in every town as I have directed you. So, it's like Paul had said to, to Timothy, Here's kind of the overview of what I think you should be doing. Order and appoint key leaders. Now get to it. <laughs> and so you, you, you see this then. That's why this little PowerPoint slide. Here's Paul. He's writing to Titus. And in effect, he has three key thoughts. Appoint the key leaders. Teach them the sound doctrine. And remind them of the truth that Christ is coming back. That's it. You can organize the book of Titus around three words appoint, teach, and remind. And then what I did here is these slides reflect how do I organize the organization of the local church? And that's what he's going to be talking about. And we're going to be looking at some of this stuff uh, more than likely next week. But he's, he's, saying, is, he's saying to Titus, Titus, you're, you're the one now, you're the key guy in Crete. Start bringing order to the chaos. And the key way to do that is appoint elders in every town. So, you know, remember, that's not a real large island, but it's not a real small. You know, so he's just supervising all this. So Timothy has an enormously formidable task, doesn't he? Titus. Or, or what did I say? D- uh, t- Titus, excuse me. Titus has a very formidable task. And so now Paul begins to help him see how to do that, and I'll I'll talk about this in a minute. Now, I do want your eye to look at the term elders in verse 5 and the term overseer in verse 7. Do you see that? They're not the same words. Now, you guys are becoming students of the New Testament so you should know this. The term that is translated "elders" is the term "presbuteros." The term that is translated "overseer" is. Do those Greek words look familiar? Yeah. Okay. Presbyteros in twenty-first century, what do you think of? Presbyterian. Okay? And episkopos that's maybe a little bit more difficult, but Episcopal. This is sometimes translated bishop as well. These are interchangeable words. They are used interchangeably in the New Testament. And they were presumably used to focus on the office and focus on the responsibility. But they're interchangeable. Presbyteros, the elder, the spiritual leader, The term overseer defines the responsibility or overseeing the growth and management of the local church.
1: Now, why are they considered the
0: same? They're used well. We we reach that conclusion, Glenn, when you study all the different places it's used throughout the New Testament. They're used interchangeably, referring to the same office.
1: Same office.
0: The same office. Yes. The same and I probably, maybe I didn't, I don't know if I used that term or not, but we're talking about an office, a leadership office in the local church. They are used in the New Testament in an interchangeable way. The same office. But as I was quickly commenting, elder refers to kind of the position and overseer, I'm, I'm, I'm translating it into English, but overseer kind of captures the responsibility of the position. <coughs> Does that make sense to you? sometimes your body language, I'm not sure it's making sense, so you need to help me if it doesn't make sense. That's more of just a a minor point, but I was anticipating that somebody's going to ask me the question, what's the difference between an elder and an overseer? So I just anticipated. What's that? (laughs) But it's just, they are different terms, but they are focusing on the same office. I hope that makes sense. So let's look at this. Key terms of verse (coughs) 5 order and elders. The key to order is a leader. Boy, that's profound, isn't it? The key to order is a leader. Now this is a statement that is incredibly unpopular, it's incendiary, it's provocative, and if I say it in a shot, I can be shot. Mm-hmm. But from God's perspective, the key to order in the family is the husband. Now oh, that isn't that... I, if I would say this outside, I'd be shot. You know, <laughs> the mafia, they'd hire a mafia agent to take a hit out on me and I'd be dead the next day. Now I'm, I'm being, nobody's laughing, but that's supposed to be humorous. But that it it is it is it is the, it is the fact that every institution God creates, and He created three primary institutions: the family, the state, and the church. Each one has stewardship responsibilities, and each one has a defined leader or leaders that are to maintain this order. I should say maybe to facilitate, that's a better way to put it, to facilitate this order. And it's a stewardship. And I mean, that's a a hard, it's a very difficult thing to talk about today because there's so much confusion and so much disorder. But Paul is saying, Timothy, I left you in Cree with a stewardship responsibility. Bring order through the appointment of key leaders. That's how you do it. Then what he does in verse 6, now this, this is going to get a little bit um, detailed, but I think it's important for us to see this. I want to give you a handout here. He, he says, now listen very carefully to this sentence. The key to a good leader is their character.
1: In my translation, in both verses, it calls the leader that he's talking about blameless. It must be
0: blamed. Yeah, that's right. ESV translates it in both verse 6 and verse 7 as above reproach. So, what I want to do, and uh, please just take one and, and pass it on. Let me just have one quickly. Now, we're, we're not, don't lose this. Well, you know, I mean, if, you know, if you lose it if you lose it you owe a thousand dollars to the capital fund of Steadfast Bible Fellowship Church that's the church I'm on staff with and Peggy and I chaired the capital campaign that's over now but we're looking at a new capital campaign so anyway um, I'm just kidding I would never do that I raised a lot of money at Grace University with that line I'll tell you <laughs> <laughs> oh, goodness, alright now again, what I think everybody has on, what this chart does, and we're not going to get into this this morning, uh, other than just to highlight one or two thoughts, there are two passages in the New Testament that talk about spiritual leadership talk about the presbutterah the episcopoi, I'm using the plural there of, of the leaders Okay, 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. We're about to start looking at Titus 1. You'll see they're very, very similar. Now, I'm going to, I'm going to recommend a book here. Uh, I knew him. I studied under him. Uh, his name is Gene Getz, and he's written a book called The Measure of a Man. And what Getz does in that book is he takes all of these qualities... And each one of them is a chapter in the book. And he says, this is God's, this is a description of God's ideal for a man. He wrote another book called The Measure of a Woman. And he wrote a third book called The Measure of a Family. And he's dealing with all the stuff in scripture about those three. But this is, is so in a sense, let's kind of think about it from this angle. Titus, I want you to appoint key spiritual leaders. And I want you to focus on character traits. And this is what we're looking for, Titus. Mature men of God. So, Getz is right. What does a mature man of God look like? That's with this description. And so, I mean, I really like, I've used that in mentoring groups over the years. Uh, Getz's book, The Measure of a Man, I use it with many students in some of the mentoring groups I've had over the years with them. And the the guys would often say that they never remember anything I said in my classes, they never remember anything in the test, but they remember the book, (laughs) The Measure of a Man. Because it's profound. I mean, he really gets, and so what he's doing is he's taking this from the Scripture, and using other parts of god 's word to embellish what each one of these quality traits looks like, so to me that 's really important this and let me let me make a couple of introductory comments we 'll get started on it then we 'll really complete this next week and do not lose this i 'm bringing order out of the chaos no i 'm just kidding, but try not to lose it if you can. If there are any extras, let me have them, please so He's he's saying he's saying here, when you're choosing presbyteroi or episcopal the plural presbyteros, don't just fill a slot. Do you understand what I mean? Don't just fill a slot. Take your time. Make sure you're choosing a person that reflects. Spiritual maturity, and spiritual maturity is what this looks like. Now, the challenge is always: Well, what if of of this list? What if two or three of them they don't meet? Well, see, that's here's where wisdom enters in, and you know, you're discerning. You know, this is this is like this is almost like perfect maturity. But it's like Aristotle used to, and I rarely quote Aristotle, but like Aristotle used to say, you're never going to hit the target if you don't know what the target is. This is the target. This is the target of what we're looking for. And that's what Goetz did in his book. He said, the target is mature men in Christ. This is a great place to get your arms around what a mature man in Christ looks like. So let's put it very positively. This is the goal each one of you guys sitting around the table should have for your life. This is the kind of man you want to be. Now, I can say that very effectively to a 20-year-old. But some of you are like me. You're old, you know. and But you never, ever, ever stop growing in the Lord. You never, ever stop maturing in the Lord. Amen. You never do. So even if you're like me, you're 70. It's not too late. <laughs> As a matter of fact, it's never too late. And it's just the kind of thing. It, it this gives a refreshing, at least I hope it is, refreshing applicational perspective to something. This isn't just a list. This is this is really important stuff here. So, what's the very friend, and uh, Rob, uh, I, uh, uh, I don't know what translation he's using. Verse 8, begin. If anyone is, his translation is blameless. ESV, I think ESB ES, translates it above reproach. What does that mean? What's reproach mean? What does the English word reproach mean? say it again criticism, criticism. Without
1: charges,
0: you, you can bring accusations about somebody
1: called to account
0: yeah I mean there's just there, there are a number of things there yeah. so to be above reproach as much as you can influence it to live your life in such a way that no one no one can publicly bring a charge against you failure of integrity dishonest untrustworthy. I told you this because uh, I think, maybe we didn't do it here, but um, I, I think I may have said it here. You know, Billy Graham just died a couple of weeks ago. And in 1947, Billy Graham, when he was forming his organization, gathered the leaders of the BGA together in Modesta, California. And they wrote the Modesto Manifest. Did I talk about that in here? Not a
1: lot.
0: Not a lot. But the reason, he said, okay, I do not want to start an organization where there's going to be failure of integrity, failure of morality, and I want to be an organization that's above reproach. So they laid out, they laid out four goals, what became known as the Modesto Manifesto. Four key elements of this ministry. We will always, always, always do a public audit of our finances, which the total audit report is available to the public. Secondly, He said, we will hire an outside firm to keep the records of our evangelistic crusades. So that when we put numbers out, they're numbers that are validated by a firm. Number three, we will always, always, always organize our lives in such a way that no one can ever bring an accusation about our life in terms of morality. And Graham, always, whenever he traveled, he never traveled alone with a woman. And he never went to a restaurant with any woman except his wife, unless other members of the team were with him. He would go into a hotel room, he had one of his staff go into the motel room or hotel room first to check it out to make sure there isn't some, you know, paparazzi there wanting with a woman trying to take a picture that is very uncompromising. That's the extent Graham went to be a man above reproach. And you know the one thing you've heard in all of the comments about Billy Graham, he was a man of integrity. Even people who didn't like him or were critical of him because he lived his life above reproach. And, and it, was, it was nobody could bring a charge against him. And that's why one of the standards of the Bible, it's in another passage of Scripture from Paul is, don't even give the appearance of evil. And I, I mean, I, you know, I'm saying this only because I learned this from Graham. I, when I, My director of development when I was president was a woman, and, and she and I, I never, ever went on a trip with her alone. If we were going to see a donor in the city, she'd drive her car, I'd drive mine, and we'd meet there. Because I did not ever want to get in even the appearance of something going on in my life between her and me. And I'm saying that because that's in, in the, 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 the age in which you and I live, that's really important for men to do that. Because, you know, the kind of culture we live in is scandalous, it's cesspool, and people draw all kinds of conclusions that are, in many cases aren't even the right conclusions to draw. Let alone. But to, to be above reproach means you've got to really be intentional about that. You really have to think through, what does that look like in my life? And so I just think it's quite instructive that right out of the chute, Paul says to Titus, look for men that are above reproach. To be continued next week, okay? We're going to really tear this apart and then put it all back together. And some of the the slide copies as well as this thing. So you have a lot to bring before you know it. You're going to bring wheelbarrows of material into class each week. So. Lord, thank you for the time around the Word of God this morning. Thank you for the instruction that we receive as we look at the Word of God. Thank you for the good questions, interaction, engagement of the men. Thank you that through your Holy Spirit, you're not only enabling to understand, but you're opening their hearts to willingly embrace the truth that's there so that it can change them. We're all in the process of growth. We're all in the process of sanctification. We're all in the process of becoming like Jesus, which is the goal you have for our lives. We want to be men that are the men that Paul's describing here. It's all a part of growth. It's all a part of your patiently developing these qualities in our life. Thank you that you are a patient, long-suffering, merciful, gracious, loving, compassionate God. And I'm just so grateful for each man here that they're willing to take time out of their busy Wednesday schedule for a time of intense study. Bless them in their work uh, as they go now their separate ways. As you dismiss us, do so with your blessing. And we want to represent you well in our thoughts and our deeds to the glory of Christ we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.